Hey everyone, thanks for joining me. I hope your day is going well. Want to discuss what's going on in the Ukraine proxy war. Here's the headline from the New York Times. U.S. warms to helping Ukraine target Crimea. The Biden administration is considering the argument that Kiev needs the power to strike at the Ukrainian peninsula annexed by Russia in 2014. Just a quick background on Crimea. So Crimea was long a part of uh, Russia, the Soviet Union. It was it was gifted to Ukraine in the 1950 uh, by the Soviet Union as a to mark some sort of anniversary. It was an administrative transfer, but the the population of Crimea has always considered itself to be Russian, and Crimea has actually tried to be independent from Ukraine, uh, dating back to 1991 when Ukraine became its own independent country, and. Uh, Crimea was seized by Russia in 2014 after the U.S.-backed coup. Nobody died, uh, and that's in part because Russia had the support of the majority of the population, as every single poll has showed um, ever since then. But still, Ukraine considers Crimea to be its territory, and has its official war aim is to win it back. And the Biden administration has officially been resisting efforts to give Ukraine the weapons that it could be used to hit Crimea. But now the Times reports that the U.S. is changing uh, that that previous policy. And um, what the Times says is interesting. Basically, they're, they're counting on the fact that Putin won't use nuclear weapons. So even though Russia sees Crimea as Russian territory, and even though Russian doctrine allows the use of nuclear weapons to defend any kind of existential threat to its territory, Still, basically, the U.S. officials who are proposing giving Ukraine weapons to hit Crimea are gambling that Putin won't actually use nuclear weapons. So this is what the Times says. Uh, Despite the additional weaponry, the Biden administration does not think that Ukraine can take Crimea militarily. And indeed, there are still worries that such a move could drive Putin to retaliate with an escalatory response. But officials said their assessment now is that Ukraine needs to believe that Crimea is at risk in part to strengthen Ukraine's position in any future negotiations. The time goes on. Uh, contributing to the shifting thinking is a dampening of fears that targeting Crimea would drive Putin to use a tactical nuclear weapon, officials say. Uh, so they're basically calculating that it's unlikely that Putin will use a nuclear weapon if they give Ukraine the weapons to hit Crimea. And, uh, they quote someone, the Times quotes someone from the RAND Corporation, which is a Pentagon-tied think tank, who says, there is more clarity on the Russians' tolerance for damage and attacks. Crimea has already been hit many times without a massive escalation from the Kremlin. So again, that's in line with this thinking that Russia won't retaliate with nuclear weapons or massively escalate because already they've taken some hits in Crimea and haven't retaliated. But the, but the Times also says this. It says, for their part, U.S. officials say they do not know how Putin will react if Ukraine attacks Crimea using American-supplied weapons. So basically, the gamble here is if we arm Ukraine, Russia is not going to react. So basically, they're relying on Russia to be restrained here, which I think is a pretty dangerous assumption to make, because you're talking about something... That touches on Russia's nuclear doctrine, which is that, again, if Russia faces an existential threat, it could use nuclear weapons to protect itself. So that's that. And, you know, as to why the story is out now, um, 
whether this is a serious proposal inside the Biden White House or whether this is just being used to posture, I don't know. I think it's possible that this is just sort of showboating by the U.S. to make it look as if it's considering escalating. But we also have to take it seriously uh, because that's what is being reported here, that the U.S. is considering that this. And um, it, this, of course, is the kind of thing that was long been predicted, that when you engage in a proxy war like this, spend tens of billions of dollars, you're going to get on the escalation ladder. And the more you spend on this war, the more involved you are, the more you'll be incentivized to double down. And that's what it looks like here. Because, you know, right now there's this acknowledgement that the U.S. strategy is basically just prolonging the war. Uh, that came most recently from a uh, former British military official named Edward Stringer, who was the former head of operations for the U.K. defense staff. And he said this to the Wall Street Journal. He said, quote, by continuing to drip feed just enough for Ukraine not to lose, what the West is doing is just prolonging the war. That's exactly right. The West is wants to contain this to inside Ukraine because the West doesn't want to fight Russia itself. And so what they're doing is basically giving Ukraine just enough for Ukraine not to lose and thereby prolonging the war. And why? Because the longer the war goes on, the more they can bleed Russia. And that seems to be the strategy. Uh, and that would seem to be the thinking behind giving Ukraine weapons to hit Crimea, because that also wouldn't turn the war. As this article says in the Times, they don't think Ukraine can take Crimea. But certainly, if you if you give Ukraine the weapons to hit Crimea, you will no doubt prolong the war. Uh, so this would be in line with that. And meanwhile, speaking of prolonging the war, there's this current standoff with Germany, uh, between the U.S. and Germany, over tanks. The U.S. wants Germany to send leopard tanks into Ukraine to help Ukraine uh, you know, face an upcoming offensive by Russia. And Germany says that that would be too dangerous for them because that would basically be a, a major escalation on their part and could risk a direct confrontation between Germany and Russia. So to sort of blunt the threat of that, Germany wants the U.S. to send in tanks of its own first before Germany sends those tanks. That's the Germany position. And the U.S. won't do that for some reason. Now, they claim it's because the maintenance involved in the Abrams tank, which is what the U.S. would provide, is too difficult and wouldn't work for the Ukrainian battlefield, whereas the German Leopard tank is more manageable. It's, there's less maintenance involved. That's the official reason. But um, a German lawmaker named Seven Dagdalen, uh, a member of the German parliament, she's wrote an article saying that actually the U.S. aim, she thinks, is that wants to actually put Germany in Russia's crossfire. Uh, and that's, she says this. She says, uh, if, if Germany sends tanks to Ukraine and that, you know, risks a conflict between Germany and Russia. The U.S., she says, would thus have achieved one of its long-term strategic objectives, namely to prevent cooperation between Germany and Russia forever. So that's what she says is the aim here, is that basically the, the U.S., it's not really a battlefield consideration. It's that the U.S. just wants to further poison relations between Russia and Germany because Germany, as has long been acknowledged, is the key to a diplomatic solution. Uh, Germany is Russia's neighbor. Uh, they had close ties before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was, Germany was getting like a, a huge percentage of its gas from Russia. And so Germany is still an off-ramp to a diplomatic settlement. And so if Germany escalates its, its involvement in the war, then that, that makes it more difficult for Germany and Russia to reach some kind of diplomatic 
breakthrough. And that's what she says is, is the aim here. And I, I think that's a very plausible interpretation. And again, absent all of, in all of these discussions, is any talk of diplomacy? No one's even talking about it now. Um, there is a former German brigade general who was the military advisor to Angela Merkel, the former German chancellor, named Eric Vaud. And he recently has been speaking out more forcefully. And, um, and he, he, he supports arming Ukraine. Uh, but he says this, uh, of course it was and is right to support Ukraine. And of course, Russia's attack does not comply with international law. But now the consequences must finally be considered. And he goes on to say that the only solution is negotiations, that there's no military solution to this war. And the key to, to he says, the key to solving the conflict, I'm quoting him, does not lie in Kiev, does not lie in Berlin, Brussels, or Paris. It lies in Washington and Moscow. And that, he says, has to be seen as the key to ending the war is direct talks between Washington and Moscow. But there's no talk of that right now. There's no, it's only a question of, as that former British official warned, a policy of prolonging the war. That's the dominant strategy right now. And um, even as it's openly recognized that this is a proxy war. So for example, here's Michael O'Hanlon. He's with the Brookings Institute in D.C., a uh, big supporter of the Iraq war and other U.S. military interventions. And he's talking about how the U.S. needs to escalate support to, to Ukraine. But he also says this, the form of military support to Ukraine, quote, far exceeds what the U.S. did to help Afghan Mujahideen fight the Soviets in the 1980s or any of its other partners in Cold War era proxy conflicts against the USSR. So this is a recognition that this is a proxy war and the biggest proxy war ever, bigger than Afghanistan or any other, or any of the other Cold War era proxy conflicts in his terms. But he says we need to make it bigger because that is the only way really to defeat Russia in this war. Um, and that is the, that, that's the only difference in Washington right now. There are people who want to just keep the conflict contained to Ukraine and people who want to escalate it further and risk a direct war with Russia. That's the spectrum of debate right now. And voices like General Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who a few months ago was calling for diplomacy, he stopped talking about that. And now nobody is in Washington anymore, um, including Congress. So that's that's where we're at. Uh, for It's a depressing state of affairs, but that's where we're at. Okay, that's my rant. Let's take some calls. And great to see so many people here. So thank you for tuning in. All right, Brent, you're up. Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. So I might have uh, drinking the mate latte, so to speak. Um, I thought I saw you somewhere in public. Um, so I was at the Jimmy Dore show last week, and I saw. Usually, Jimmy calls out people to come into the crowd if if it's someone like someone uh, quote unquote well known. And he didn't do that. So I thought I saw you in the crowd, but I was like, mm, I don't think so. And then I was going to approach you, but um, this, either you or a lookalike, put on the hood. And I, I took that as a message as, oh, he doesn't want to talk to anybody. So, uh, question, yeah, first well, question, is that yeah. you? Yes, that was me. That was me. I, I was there. Uh, you were wearing uh, gray pants, I, re- I remember. Was, is that yeah, you? Yes. Yes, that was me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to the Jimmy Dore. 
live show in uh, Studio City on Friday because uh, I was there. Yes, for, I was, was front row. Okay, oh, so wow. that was you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, wow, I should have said something, but I, I, I thought you put on the hood. I was like, oh, you don't want to talk to people. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, that, honestly, I, I, I think I was just cold or something. I, I don't remember. Okay. Uh, I, I wasn't trying to avoid people. Um, I just, uh, I was cold, I think. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then you went, you went backstage. Right, I, yeah. 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 Okay, so that, that was you. I mean, don't don't mean to sound stalkerish or anything, but no, yeah, it's fine. Like, it's funny. No, I, I I was there, and that, that was a great show. And Jimmy performed, and Eddie Pepitone, and uh, Steph Zamorano, uh, and it was it was a great show. Really, and Kurt Kurt Metzger from the Jimmy Dore show as well. It, it was a great it was a great show. Oh, and that, speaking of of that, so my next question is, um, I feel like this war, this Russian Ukraine war is kind of. Um, there's a lot of politics, like, and people taking sides and people, like, based on um, their their position, like, Jimmy's position or some of these other podcasters, they take position, like, their positions without really thinking about, like, their message. Like, I heard Kurt, he made a joke about, like, Ukraine invaded their, uh, violated the territory of so- or Russian uh, violated the territory of sovereignty of Ukraine. And, and I was in the front row, I, was, I said, yes. And I was literally the only one in the crowd, and that kind of made me feel kind of nervous because I'm thinking, well, yes, the U.S. and Ukraine, they're all corrupt. They're all playing dirty politics. It is a proxy war. They should stop. The U.S. should stop fighting Ukraine. But it's kind of like, uh, do, do these people understand uh, basic international law? Maybe I'm expecting too much. I don't know. So I just want to get your opinion as to how people are so supportive of Jimmy's anti-war message, yet they don't understand. Well, listen, you know, like, I'm not going to generalize uh, right. about Jimmy's audience based on your impression of how a joke went over. And I think that's the key point <laughs> is, is it's a joke, you know? Uh, so Kurt was doing a bit and I'm not going to, I know what bit you're talking about. I think it's actually very funny, like the joke that Kurt it was, it was funny, yeah. yeah. So, you know, th- and that to me is what matters here. It, it's a fun... Now, I'm not going to do it because I, I don't want to ruin the punchline for people who go to see Kurt live. <laughs> uh, it's, but um, I, I think that's the thing to keep in mind. So I, I can't generalize about Jimmy's audience because, you know, everyone's got their own opinions and um, Kurt's making a joke, you know, so, so that's, that's how I see that. Thank you, Brent, for the call. All right. All right. Thank you. Steve. Hi. Hi. Great. Uh, I, I love the analysis at the beginning. Um, the whole thing about retaliation uh, and, oh, Russia's going to launch a nuke. Russia is not going to launch a nuke against a country that has been scrupulously trying to avoid de- to destroy. Uh, they have escalation dominance there. So let's say they start bombing um Crimea. What could there's so many things Russia could do that they haven't done. You made this point earlier in the war that Russia hasn't been fighting this war the way the US would. The US would have flattened everything. Yep. They haven't they haven't touched the bridges over the Nipper mm. River. There are people in Moscow who are pissed off that they haven't blown those bridges. And, and I, their strategy is to draw the Ukrainian army in and kill it. But but there's so many things they could do. They haven't hit the airport. Why are they letting Zelensky fly in and out? 
Uh, I mean, there's so many steps of retaliation they can take. They're not going to use a nuke. Right. And uh, uh, people, they have escalation dominance. They're not going to use a nuke. Um, I was rewatching today uh, War and Peace in the Nuclear Age. It's a PBS documentary from 1989. And I highly recommend everyone. It's kind of like a college class. It's 13 parts. But uh, they talk about the use of, you know, how, how in the past, in the Cold War, they thought about nuclear weapons. And McNamara, when he first got in, had something he called flexible response and he thought if the Russians invade West Germany, I can use tactical missiles and then they'll only use tactical missiles and we can stop the war somehow. And then by, by the end of his term, by about 1966, 67, he realized, no, uh, it's impossible. No one can use a nuclear weapon. The, the only reason for the existence of nuclear weapons is to keep other people from using nuclear weapons. They're not usable as a weapon. I, I think the Russians know that, too. Um, and as far as retaliation, again, they have escalation dominance. That's what Barack Obama said in 2014 when they were pressuring him. I'm not a fan of Barack Obama, but he did do this right. Uh, they were pressuring him to send offensive weapons so they could retake Crimea. And he said, no, uh, they have escalation dominance. It's in their core interest. It's not in our core interest. So I'll stop, but I'm just, it, it, they're crazy. They're crazy. Yeah. I don't know what else. Yeah, well, I agree. Listen, Steve, I think you raise a great point. I think it's obviously very unlikely that Russia would use nuclear weapons, but I just, I think it's reckless to even risk it. And I, the fact that it's, that that's a risk that they feel they can take. I just find that dangerous, but you're right. And you raise a very good point that Russia does have escalation dominance and they do have other ways to hit back other than Aaron, nuclear weapons. Aaron, I think they're, I think they're mirroring. I think whatever the West says mm. Russia's going to do, they're planning on doing. Right. And I think, well, let, me, reason, but let me say, yeah. but let me say, um, you know, there is a precedent. Like we know already what, what has happened when the U S has escalated the war. So, you know, back in the fall, and I quote this article a lot, the New York times reported that the U S U S officials fear that the worst moments are yet to come because Russia has not yet targeted civilian infrastructure and um, yeah. has, you know, ha has limited its bombing. So U S officials acknowledge that. And, and that, you know, um, and, and in fact, they even said U S officials told the times that they were baffled and that Russia hadn't escalated the war yet. And what happens after that? Well, Ukraine gets the green light to blow up the Kerch bridge. Right. In Crimea. And we saw Russia's response, devastating attacks and targeting infrastructure on a mass scale for the first time. Uh, and so there's a precedent. So basically now the U.S. is basically is, is mulling a repeat of that, except even worse, because uh, rather than just blowing up, you know, one part of a bridge, which didn't uh, which ultimately didn't cause too much damage to Russia at all. It, it briefly interrupted the bridge for a short time. Now they're talking about striking even more targets uh, with heavier offensive weaponry, not, not just like a truck bomb. So it's, they're basically asking for a more dangerous escalation by Russia, all while, acknowledging, all, all while acknowledging that, that Ukraine can't take Crimea back anyway. But so, why are they asking for escalation? See, then you have to ask why. 
I think they're asking for escalation so they can try to sell the Western public on intervention. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's one possibility. Okay. And that's very scary. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay. And Steve, if you can, maybe drop a link to that that documentary that you mentioned inside the chat. I think people might want to see that. Okay. Sterling. Hi, Aaron. Hi. So again, our arrogance is just off the chain. I can't get over it. We just don't even think about the people anymore. We just talk about the country. It's like we're going to actually threaten the people of Crimea, Crimea now. Um, it, it just completely blows my mind. Um, and you know me, as far as and everybody says it, most people say it, um, we were right to go in there and we're right to send all of these weapons to Ukraine, you know, a completely corrupt country with this not a very well-trained military, as far as I can really tell, um, a bunch of nationalists that I think we, that we figured out how to use very well. And so what was so interesting about the man from Germany saying that was that, you know, Merkel was the one who said, so Germany was well aware and NATO was well aware that Minsk was like a joke. And we have made, we have, done, we have, <laughs> I love this country. I have no problem with Ukrainians, but we really have been really bad actors, bad faith actors all over this planet. And I, you know me, it just, all of it, it just makes me completely crazy. And I think what we're doing is a provocation. Um, right now, we have been humiliated time and time again with Russia. We have the Solidar was taken and then not taken and now it is definitely taken we have the pipeline fiasco we have the latest helicopter that you know russia was just taking down this building and then it was like well no actually the people that know don't know exactly what they're doing because they're not well trained in ukraine um you know better off to send people to train people to what they need to be doing than just throw weapons at them um in my opinion and you're talking about the helicopter crash yeah, yeah, you know, they were so quick to say, and, and and I saw it on Twitter, this woman from Ukraine, you almost can't blame her. She's like, but they, you you feel like they throw it out there on purpose over and over. But she's like, this is why we hate Russia and yeah. on and on and on, because they're going to kill innocent civilians and children. And then it was like, because I was like, wow, that just seems a little weird. Every time these things happen, I'm like, really, Russia did this? And then it came out. No, they didn't do it. And, you know, it was just they whatever they're not well trained obviously and now they're bringing them here to train them and it's just a complete fiasco where nobody in none, germany nato america we don't care about these lives lost no. i mean ukraine has we don't they don't have an endless amount of lives to keep sacrificing for united states um arrogance it's just yeah. and the thing to think that we're also going to try and go to war with china at the same time you know like your previous caller was saying we're just insane i don't know what we're thinking we're just under a trillion dollars in debt to China. Um, I just read that the first two years of Trump's presidency and nothing, I'm not, this isn't an anti-Trump thing. Um, it's just a fact that 700,000 jobs went to China his first two years. And that's just China alone. It went to other countries too. So we're still like, I don't know why, what are we thinking? It's like, you know, I kept laughing. It was like, that's like me having a big Bergdorf's bill and just deciding I'm going to blow off Bergdorf's. I'm just going to blow yeah. it up and all the people yeah. in it. It's just so anyway. Yeah. You know, um, Con Condoleezza Rice and Robert Gates, you know, two former cabinet secretaries under Bush recently had this article in the Washington post and they gave it what I think is a really accurate summary of where Ukraine is at. They say, uh, Ukraine's quote economy is in shambles. Mm. Millions have fled. Ugh. Its infrastructure is being destroyed. Much of its mineral wealth, industrial capacity, and considerable agricultural land are under Russian control. 
Ukraine's military capability and economy are now dependent almost entirely on lifelines from the West, primarily the United States. Absolutely. And they could, have also, they could have also mentioned that Ukraine's taken a huge amount of casualties in the war. Oh. But, so, so they recognize that, but then they go on to say their solution is not like they don't propose, OK, let, let's stop this destruction of Ukraine and engage in some kind of diplomacy and, mm-hmm. you know, talk about n- neutrality and some sort of, you know, uh, referendum in the Donbass for people to decide like what they, you know, anything, some kind of, they say the answer is to send in more weapons. So they acknowledge that the strategy so far of sending in weapons has left this country destroyed and their recipe is to just prescribe more of it. And they Which makes them see. more money, though. You know, uh, that just course. feeds the military-industrial yeah. complex. I mean, yeah. as you very well know. I saw the craziest video on Twitter, and they took it down immediately. Because I was shocked that it was on there. It was a man in Ukraine, like a mm. podcaster type. And he had on a Azov Battalion soldier. And he was making – the guy was like, why are you there? Why aren't you a soldier? Why aren't you doing this? And he's like, because I think you're an idiot. Mm. All of Ukraine is left that has money. They're all off skiing somewhere. I mean, the, the the video was unbelievable, and I can't find it anywhere. I went back to my timeline to see if I could find it. Gone. I went to YouTube, Google search, everything. Um, but it was so sad that this kid who's probably maybe, I don't know why he's still there, if everybody, if his friends are all wealthy and why they're off skiing and they've all left Ukraine, is laughing at the people defending him. And he said, I think Zelensky's a puppet and you're a fool. Like he was basically kind of telling him, you need to drop your arms because this is going nowhere. And I think you're an idiot. And I was like, oh, my God, no wonder it's gone. But if anybody knows anything about it or anybody else saw that on Twitter, you know, I don't know. Really sad. Sterling, thank you for the call. Yeah. Jamie, you're up. Aaron, how you doing? Hi there. So if you don't mind, I'd love to hear you talk about uh, what's going on. Um in the Ukraine through the lens of Syria, another part of the world where you obviously have a lot of expertise. Specifically, I understand that the U.S. is meeting with Erdogan, and I've read reports that Erdogan has talked about reconciliation with Assad and things that uh, I'm sure the U.S. uh, is nervous about. Um, Is he just sort of playing two sides, given his position in NATO? What are the odds that he can... um, intercede in a positive way just anything you can share on this and i apologize if it's something you've covered before and i just no i haven't covered it i haven't covered it because i haven't been paying attention to that angle of this but it's very important and uh i'm i i hope to interview somebody about this soon on my podcast pushback hopefully joshua landis if he's available of the university of Oklahoma, who's very up to speed on this and so i don't understand what erdogan's doing yet he has a problem where Turkey, you know, uh, he's got, you know, a lot of uh, refuge, Syrian refugees inside Turkey. He wants to resolve this issue with the Kurds or he doesn't want the Kurds to have a, you know, like a their own little statelet inside of Syria because he sees that as a threat to him, to, to, to Turkey and uh, and sort of like a, a base of support for the pro-Kurdish movements inside of inside of Turkey. And he's also got the fact that he's he's basically propping up an an Al-Qaeda province inside of Syria, Idlib. Um, Idlib is controlled by an Al-Qaeda offshoot and they rely on Turkey. They're even like being incorporated into the Turkish uh, infrastructure um, because they're right there on the border and they're using Turkish currency. But they're also a huge threat to everybody because this is where all the jihadi groups that fought in Syria have gone to now. And so it's a, you know, as Brett McGurk, who's a Biden official called it, it's 
Al-Qaeda's largest safe haven since 9-11. And so what does Erdogan do about that? I mean, he's it's sort of a, a bargaining chip he has, I guess, because it's a threat to everyone, but it's also a huge problem. And what to do with all those people there? And so um, there's talk now of him. You know, he's talking to Russia. He's talking about, and, uh, you know, Turkish and Syrian officials are meeting. But um, it's it's awkward, and I don't know what what is going to happen. I, I think foremost, Erdogan really wants something he really wants to um, be able to attack the Kurds and he really wants to neutralize them. And I think possibly that might get, lead him to reach some sort of deal with the Syrian government. But it's not something I have a full handle on because uh, Erdogan is he's very good at playing all sides. Mm. Is there any scenario possible where he reconciles with Assad and that allows the Russians to move against the U.S. presence in Syria? in a way that, you know, kind of uh, applies, uh, I guess, asynchronous pressure, given what's happening in, in the Ukraine? I don't think Russia would ever move against the U.S. and Syria because, you know, those two armies don't want to fight head to head because everyone knows where it would go. But, um, yeah, I do think it's very difficult to maintain the status quo and... Um, you know, Erdogan also, he feels that the U.S. has betrayed him. So he went along with the dirty war in Syria. Apparently, initially, he wasn't actually fully on board, but he went along with it. And he certainly played a very big role. He let he let members of ISIS by the thousands cross his border and uh, and helped arm them and stuff. But then he felt he got sold out by the U.S. when there was that. He accused them of a, of a coup attempt a few years ago, if you remember mm, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he accused them of being behind it. And, you know, I don't know what the story is there, but that's that's what he said. And so I think he's less U.S. friendly now. And he has, it's weird, like he, he's, he's armed Ukraine. So like, you know, like Turkish drones are being used against Russia uh, in Ukraine. But yet also he's made ties with Russia and he's, you know, he's taking a lot of Russian gas. There's the Turkstream pipeline. So he, he kind of is trying to be friends with everybody. And um, I... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a reckon or some sort of agreement between the Syrian government and Turkey, but uh, I don't want to predict it because I just, it's, it's very hard to, to know, you know, but mm-hmm. yes, certainly there are many people who I follow who think that, yes, there is going to be some sort of uh, rapprochement between Turkey and Syria. All right. Well, I don't want to occupy any more time. Thanks for your response and, you know, thanks for all the great work. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hello. Hi there. Hey, um, this might be a little bit of a boring question, uh, but I wanted to ask if you're up to date on like the Canadian interference uh, allegations or like China Gate that's going on. I know the uh, journalist who broke the story is kind of a Russia Gator, and I've read his book, and there's a lot of suspicious stuff in there it reads more like a tom clancy novel than like a i don't know like an academic work um and what you generally think of those allegations if you've read them i haven't uh i haven't really looked into it i I did hear that there was like a a controversy in canada about like china being accused of meddling but that's as far as i got so so what happened uh so basically there's allegations that 
the Chinese consulate in Toronto uh, funneled two hundred thousand um, dollars through a businessman, a local businessman, and then uh, he gave that to eleven MPs in the GTA. And yeah, they don't know who the MPs are. Um, they don't know how the money was dispersed. We don't even know if they got elected or not. Um, but this is like dominated headlines for like the past two months. And uh, yeah, I just don't see a lot of evidence from the, uh, you know, anonymous source from CSIS. Yeah, that's really funny. Uh, I mean, look, like, let's say it's true. Um, it's so, what, so what's, what's the figure? It's $200,000. Yeah, roughly, roughly. Yeah. Right. So, you know, uh, Canada itself spends millions of dollars to interfere in other countries abroad. Um, it, you know, it pales in comparison to the U.S., but basically it's always done the U.S.'s bidding whenever there's a country that the U.S. wants to destabilize. So Haiti, uh, Syria, uh, Canada is always very involved. So it's like, let's say it's true. It's a, it's a paltry sum in comparison to what Canada gets involved in abroad. But that's the, you know, that's the point of these kind of interference scandals, like, like the freak out about Russian bots and, and trolls. It's to, um, it's used to, you know, fear monger against the chosen enemy. Uh, and it used to poison diplomacy with that country. And it's used to, you know, as it's conveniently to also just kind of distract people from what we're doing abroad, because if we're focused on how people are, are, are interfering with us, then there's no space to talk about how we're interfering with them. So um, that's what I can say about that, but I'll look into it. That sounds really funny. And uh, it's, I, I like the fact that Canada gets its own version of Russia gate, you know, but, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but they um, have to go, but I've seen, you know, I've seen it before, like back during the height of Russia gate there, I remember seeing articles in the globe and mail and stuff about like warnings about Russian interference in the next election and that, that getting some headlines. But of course, you know, it's, it's hard to gain traction because it's so silly and no one takes, no one really takes it seriously. And it's never even spelled out what exactly the supposed interference is supposed to entail. Like, so Russia steals some emails or puts out some dumb memes on social media. It's, it's very akin to like a, a boogeyman. It's just, it's like a, it's a fiction, it's a fictionalized and undefined threat that allows security state people to justify their positions and, and, um, and their jobs, but otherwise it doesn't have any value. Right. I totally agree. Uh, but it just, it gets so many headlines. And also I think Canada gave around 200,000 to the Kiev independent when it was starting up. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> back, back during the, back during the Maidan uh, protest, which led to the coup in, in Ukraine, um, like the far right nationalists who were like, you know, engaged in, in violent standoffs with the Ukrainian government at the time, they, they took refuge in the Canadian embassy. So like, Literally, like the can the, the Canadian embassy, you know, took in neo Nazis. I'm not saying all of them like were neo Nazis, but some of them were, and gave mm -hmm. them refuge. And so was very very involved back then. And um, you know, uh, Christian Freeland, the foreign minister, is all is all you know has deep ties to the far right movement inside Ukraine. Her her grandfather was a Ukrainian Nazi, so very very involved. Yeah, and what do you think on a broader level of? Uh, the U.S. and Canada, like, ramping up possible, like, uh, hostilities with China? And uh, do you think Trump is, would be against that? Or, or what do you think? Well, uh, yeah, Trump, 
Trump is a mixed bag. Like he, he seemed to have some kind of personal affinity for Xi Jinping, or he seemed to like him or respect him or something. But also, you know, he, um, his secretary of state was Mike Pompeo, who was a neocon and against any government that is any kind of uh, deterrent to U.S. power. And China's certainly up there. So, so Trump presided over some, I think, some really hawkish policies toward China. But also, I think he personally himself tried to, like, you know, make nice with Xi Jinping, uh, kind of like with with Russia. Like, it's obvious he likes Putin. He respects him. But yet he let his 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 administration, you know, Pompeo, Bolton, carried out all these policies that rapidly escalated tensions with Russia and I think helped give us the, the, the war of today. Um, arming Ukraine in ways that uh, Obama wouldn't and also tearing up uh, arms control treaties that massively escalated the threat. So, so Trump is a mixed bag. So I don't think, I, I doubt U.S. policy would be any different under Trump, but who knows with that guy? He's, he's a wild card. Okay, great. Thanks. So. Thank you. Have a good one. Okay, uh, Sam. Hey, it's been a minute since we chatted. Um, you know, I got I had thought that by the winter there would be a, a, a peace deal reached between Ukraine and Russia just solely because of countries needing gas uh, for fuel and heating. But yet here we are dead of winter and still no peace deal. So I'm I'm just wondering at this point, is there even a chance if we if that's not even going to get people to negotiation tables? It's a good question. I think uh, Europe's been lucky because it's been a warmer winter than uh, than normal. Uh, but they also have to think about not just this winter, but next winter. So for next winter, so they have now some reserves of gas that they've stored up, and that will hopefully that will probably get them through this winter. But what about next winter and the winter after that? Is there a long term solution to their energy needs that doesn't involve Russia? And the U.S. thinks so because they can send over uh, liquefied natural gas, but I don't think that's sustainable because it's so expensive. And there have been complaints in Europe about how, how pricey the U.S. LNG is and how basically uh, they feel betrayed because the U.S. has been selling that gas at, you know, uh, at a very profitable rate for the U.S., but it, but it, at a really uh, exaggerated price for, for Europe. So. I think that's the issue. I, I, I just don't think sustainable over the long term, Europe can sustain itself like this. But who knows? I'm not an energy expert, so maybe it's possible. But it doesn't, it just, it doesn't seem to me. I mean, we've seen, for example, Russian gas going to Europe right now just via Turkey. So basically, mm-hmm. because Europeans don't want to receive the Russian gas directly, it goes through Turkey first. And that's great for Turkey because they get like a, a, a <laughs> cut, like they get like a transit fee. But it's inefficient and expensive for everybody else. So is that just the plan now to basically like pretend they're not getting Russian gas by getting it through Turkey first? Doesn't seem to me like that's the solution for the long term. Well, um, I have no idea. But to, I just wanted to give you because uh, the previous caller was about the Syria thing. Um, so, you know, I follow that closely. And uh, as of now, the, the Syrian government has said that they won't uh, negotiate anything until after the Turkish elex- election because they don't want to be used as like a... Uh, a ploy for Erdogan to say, like, look, I'm trying to resolve the situation. And uh, I will tell you what has changed is for the first time, the Syrian government has called the the Kurdish-backed groups um, terrorist groups, um, which is not something they've normally called them before. Mm. And, yeah, and my guess is because, and I'm totally speculating, but I think Joshua Landis had said this years and years ago when he had told the 
this is back when, you know, the U.S. had annexed like a third of Syria with the Kurdish led groups. And he was, you know, saying they have to make a deal with the government because the U.S. will drop them in a, you know, in a second whenever it comes to Turkey. And so if I was just taking an educated guess, the deals, that, at least from the you know Arabic newspapers I've, I've read, it would most likely be the if Erdogan wins the election, which there's no reason to suggest he wouldn't. The agreement so far would have to be that Turkey has to move its its forces out of Syria completely. And they've agreed to that. Now, in terms of you were saying they've incorporated them into the military, the, the groups they've backed. I'd say that's more so in Jarabulus. The Idlib, they, you know, they still have a separation with the HTS. They work with them, but they're not wearing like the Turkish backed uniforms. Right. Um, yeah. So you could take the groups that in Jarabulus. Now, this is just an educated guess. But the re you know, why they would want to reach out to the government, the Syrian government, is simply because it's the Kurdish-led groups that are, like, you know, occupying the oil and gas fields, etc. Mm -hmm. And I would take a guess that it would be the agreement that, you know, the Syrian government has to acknowledge they're, they're terrorists because my guess would be that the Turks would roll their tank into Syria, like, just roll straight into it. And they're banking on the fact the U.S. would immediately leave because they're not going to risk an all-out war with a NATO ally. Not for the for some you know Kurdish led groups, right? And so my guess would be that they're reaching out to the government, to say, hey, when we go after these dudes, you know, I don't, you, they, they're going to realize the U.S. leaves them, and they're going to reach out to you, and you can't be picking up that phone, right? And that's that's where my guess is because they, that would only be agreement if the, all the Turkish, you know, because they're not going to say, oh yeah, go ahead, roll into Syria, even though you have more bases, you know, in the northwest, sorry, uh, yeah, northwest. There would be, have to be the agreement. They rolled those guys out, and then they can go ahead into that border and essentially push the U.S. right out because the U.S. will immediately get an order like, "No, roll into Iraq. You're not. You're not going to fight the, the Turkish military." I only just wonder how determined are people in Washington to basically cripple Syria. I mean, they really. There seems to be a huge animus. They really want to keep Syria weak to punish it for defeating them in the dirty war, or at least not losing in the dirty war. And, yeah. you know, that, and so, so they're stealing the oil and they're stealing the wheat. And I do think vengeance is a very powerful thing in Washington. Like, I played this clip before of Jim Reich, a senator, saying that, like, we're not going anywhere. And see, like, this, this does not end. This, this will stand for a long time. Like, you know, we will stay uh, no matter what, because well, they just they're bitter and, and they're mad that, that Russia came in and uh, backed the Syrian government and defeated the Al-Qaeda dominant insurgency. And they want revenge. And so I just wonder. You know, like, for example, like when Trump tried to withdraw, what happened? Like his 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 generals just disobeyed him. <laughs> they, they refused well, to yeah, do it. They were, they were literally taking the troops from Syria and moving them to Iraq. So they would say, like, look, we only have like a couple hundred yeah. as opposed to like the thousands. I yeah. agree with you. But remember in, in uh, the northern part where the U.S. Uh, were backing the Kurdish led groups and Erdogan kind of played Russian and the U.S. and was told the U.S., hey, I might buy these S-400 missiles. And, you know, Trump kind of told him, no, no, you got to buy the Patriot missiles uh and he agreed and then you know with the condition the u.s rolls out of that northern part of uh, between syria and turkey mm. and then remember when the 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 turks moved right on in and everyone was screaming oh this is uh putin and he didn't do enough and it was like this has nothing to do with russia this was uh as robert fisk has uh, said in an interview like this was this backs tur this helps turkey and that's why they like controlled Jarablus and other regions but when it comes down to it, even if they want to punish Syria, end of the day, who you know, are you going to really risk a U.S. military conflict with the second largest military in NATO? And I, yeah. I would say no. Yeah. They're, just, 
they can't risk it. Even if they want revenge, it's just right. going to be if you see Turkish tanks rolling in, they're going to have to make a judgment call at that second. That's that's my guess. I would love mm -hmm. if you asked Joshua Landis if the Turks would do something like that because that's the only way the U.S. would move out. There's no other way. The Syrians can't approach them because they'll get bombed by the U.S. Air Force. The Russians are not going to approach them because they're not trying to reach, uh, you know, yeah. two nukes point each other. So I, yeah. my my educated guess is that's that's what's going to happen is the Turks are going to get a green light from Syria and Russia to roll the tanks in and more or less bluff the U.S. right on out. But uh, I will uh, I will definitely ask Landis that if I get a chance to speak to him. So and thank you, Sam, for the call. Okay, uh, go ahead. Hey, Aaron, good to hear you. Um, yeah, I was just uh, thinking about, um, uh, first of all, the situation that we have in Ukraine and that it, it's based on uh, fear that, um, how to say that the world economy is going to, how to say that, shift to uh, Eurasia, just, just what, I've, uh, what I've read and heard in the last uh, couple of years. And I think that the... Uh, war in the Ukraine is 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 part of that that that, he, that Russia is being provoked just to uh, weaken it and 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 uh, try to get some economic gain from it. But that that's my thought. Um, there's something else, and I might be stupid in thinking this. And I was always thinking that when when a war was going on, um, in how much can we see uh, war zones as a showcase for weapons? And am I correct in thinking this? Can oh, absolutely. See... You know. Yeah, th there was an article in CNN a few days ago saying that Ukraine is a testing ground for U.S. weapons. So it's openly advertised. And there was another mm -hmm. article along similar lines in the New York Times a few months ago. So oh, absolutely. It's, and it's like it's not even concealed. They, they openly admit it. It's, it's amazing. Okay. So it's on, on a CNN. Uh, there was an article uh, about that. Okay, I'll check yes, it out. Yes, I will find yeah. the link. Um, I'll post it in, in, in the chat. Uh, but yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, yeah. thanks. But but can can we see it only uh, as uh, the U.S. military machine, or can we also see, for instance, in in this case, uh, the Russian military machine also showcasing their weapons as well? Or am I too controversial in thinking this? No, no, sure, no. I, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, totally. Okay. Okay. And here, I'm I'm posting the link right now. Um, the headline at CNN is called "How Ukraine Became a Test Bed for Western Weapons." And uh, let's see, uh, how's the rest of it go? How Ukraine became a test bed for Western weapons and battlefield innovation. So it's like, it's, it, yeah. you know, it's everything is just, it, it's so cynical and cold. Like tens of thousands of people are dying. And mm -hmm. people in the West who are feeling all this can only see this from the point of view of like, you know, it's utility to U.S. warfare and U.S. geostrategic aims. Like, oh, cool. So we have this testing ground now. Great. This will help us in future wars. Uh, mm -hmm. Who cares if we're sacrificing all these people? Yeah. And it's been all, uh, always like this, I think, in, uh, when, when, when we think about all the wars that have been before. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Aaron. That's, that was Thank my you. question. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for the call. Okay. Scott. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Great to have you here. Thanks for calling. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, I wanted to let you know that your – can you hear me okay? 
Yep, we can hear you. Okay, got it. It's yeah, I'm new to this app. It's only the second time I've ever actually used it to call in. So um, a few weeks ago, one of your callers mentioned um, the the movement. Uh, there, there's a notawar.net and said uh-huh. there were going to be uh, uh, protests and actions. And, you know, I got off my butt and I went to one of them and uh, it was pretty cool. I guess this, this national anti-war coalition is led by uh, uh, Joe Lombardo, a longtime labor organizer and anti-war activist. And it's uh, groups like Veterans for Peace and uh, uh, the War Resisters League. Um, some group called No to U.S.-led War and some other socialist and leftist uh, uh, movements. And so um, there's even going to be, I'm in uh, Portland, Oregon, and so at 5.30 today, there's a supposed rally in March. Now, I don't know how many people are going to be there. There were like eight people, nine people at this previous meeting, but it felt good to, to do something. And I wanted you to know that like, if I hadn't been listening to your call in and you know paid attention to this woman who mentioned the no to war.net which i just posted the link again in the in the comments you know i wouldn't have done that and i think it's just so important to remember that like being on call in or twitter and watching youtube videos and stuff that that's not activism that's education and you know we need to get out there and you know kind of help engage people to think like, you know, there's more to this than what you, you might be thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen, Scott, um, uh, thanks for sharing that. And uh, for anyone who will be in the DC area on February 19th, there's a big protest going on then that I know about. And I'm sure there, I, I know there's many more going on across the country. And uh, there are many ways now to get involved because, you know, nearly a year into this war, people are seeing how horrific it is and seeing the toll on Ukrainians and the rest of the world. And there just has to be a different way. And, um, you know, it's the problem is, as you, as you mentioned, there's, there's just a lot of effort made to keep the truth concealed and to keep people from asking questions. And, um, you know, all of us can just do what we can and trying to pierce through that and trying to, you know, preserve some independent thinking. Yeah. So if anyone's in, uh, in Portland, Oregon, five thirty today in front of, uh, uh, Powell's the big bookstore on Burnside. Everybody in Portland knows where that is. And, uh, you know, say hi to me. Um, that, that would be awesome. If somebody were to show up, that would be just like one to the next to the next. And, uh, I'll be wearing a, a black hoodie and, uh, just like you, Aaron, but you know, I'm, if I put my hood up, it's only cause I'm cold. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Scott, thanks a lot for the call. You know, another, uh, an, another quick thing. Somebody yeah. mentioned this guy, Adam Curtis, a documentarian I'd never heard of. I went and looked into that too and watched some of his uh, hyper-normalization documentary. Yeah. And, you know, he talks a lot about Syria going all the way back to the 70s. It was interesting. Um, hmm. Just, just you know, more more food for thought. So, uh, yeah. really appreciate these new uh, forums that we have. Thank you very much for the work you do. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, Jason. And Jason, if you're there, there's a mute button that uh, you press to unmute yourself. It should be in the bottom left of your phone screen. 
And if not, you can try to come back in the chat and we'll try it again. But I'll move on now to Brady. Hi, Brady. You're you're a little choppy. Uh, Quite ready to put. Uh, I had microphone. So, Brady, I can't hear you. So what, uh, what you want to do is, um, if you're using Bluetooth, I think you should turn that off and we'll try, uh, this one more time with you. Oh, uh, okay. Well, we still have time. Brent is back in the queue. I usually don't take callers twice, but since we do have more time, I'll make an exception. So Brent, go ahead. So what was your favorite joke at the Jimmy Dore show? Well, I, I can't, I can't repeat it because I don't, because, you know, oh. all, you know, to butcher other people's jokes, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a crime, but I loved the, the, the joke you mentioned about Kurt and the starts with the premise of Ukraine, I thought was really funny. And, right. Um, Eddie Pepitone had some great bits when Eddie talked about uh, how uh, he like, you know, he has all these Hollywood friends who don't like Jimmy. And so when he's with them, he shit talks Jimmy, but then when he's with Jimmy, he shit talks his Hollywood friends. I thought that was very funny. And, <laughs> and then Jimmy, and then I thought Jimmy, and Jimmy did a set, Jimmy Dore did a set about half an hour. And um, some of it I've seen before because it's in his forthcoming special. But I love it because he goes into COVID. And I think for people who, you know, struggled during COVID with the lockdowns and the mandates and, and just the confusion around all that, I, th I think it's a very cathartic, set and very brave and i really i also think it's very funny too so um yeah i i really enjoyed uh everything i saw that night uh were you there for a week or just for the show or i was there for two weeks uh because jimmy you know never takes a vacation and so i guest hosted for him uh for two weeks but the thing is it was the worst timing because uh it coincided with um, the with the Republicans in Congress, you know, doing their own version of force the vote, right? So right. Jimmy's thing a few years ago was like we should force the vote, so progressives should leverage their vote for Nancy Pelosi uh, and right. get some concessions in return. And of course, they didn't do that. Uh, but this time, when Jimmy was supposed to be taking vacation, House Republicans did that and they won. Like they got a bunch of uh, concessions from McCarthy as a condition. Uh, of their vote for him, right? So Jimmy was, I think, really vindicated by that because here's a real-life example of, like, members of Congress not giving their vote over to McCarthy uh, but instead getting something for it, which is what progressives should have done when Pelosi was running for the speakership. And so Jimmy couldn't stay away. So even though I was guest hosting, Jimmy still still came on and had to because he, he had to talk about it. So it was bad timing for him, but... Um, Right. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, and Jimmy's got a great audience, and it was a really, you know, like I, I enjoy doing formats like that, so it was a good time for me. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, I think Brady's back. All right. We'll try Brady again. Thank you, Brent. Okay. For, thank for you. Call. Thank you. What's up, Aaron? Thanks again for hosting and hanging out with us. Uh, I wanted to recommend the debate as a really strong way to mitigate war and kind of disrupt their narrative. Um, there's a link I posted to the James Corbett report, which you should be familiar with. Brilliant dude out of Japan. 
and he had a panel with Whitney Webb, Derek Bros, and some other guys, and they were all in relative agreement on the topic of Elon Musk being kind of a tool. And um, so for the sake of debate and keeping the conversation interesting, James Corbett uh, played the role of uh, Johnny YouTuber. And they, they held a debate in proxy for not having anyone there to disagree with. And I think we should do the same thing with the Russia-Ukraine debate. And um, I was going to mention as well, before I pass the mic to Amanda, that it seems like we're in a bit of a Babylonian crisis right now, where it's like in these situations in the modern age where uh, we have the ability to communicate with each other, I'm really surprised to not see large conversations happening between the citizens of Russia, Ukraine, America, and Europe. It seems like we're all divided by culture and maybe even language still. And it's just really strange to see it happen. Well, thanks, Brady. I agree with all that. Um, There does need to be more dialogue. And uh, a debate is always a good way to foster that, as long as it's respectful and, you know, allows fair representation of all sides. So, yeah, I totally agree. Okay. Amanda. Hey, Aaron. It's so nice to see you today. Um, I just wanted to follow up with what Scott said um, about the no to warorg There's going to be a march and rally for people who are in the East Bay, San Francisco East Bay, in Oakland, on Sunday the 22nd. And you can get the, all of the details on the no2war.net website, um, but it's at one o'clock at Lake Merritt. So if you're in the Oakland or Oakland area on Sunday, come on down for the anti-war rally in March. Very cool. And that's a, I did that walk recently around Lake Merritt. That's a great walk. Oh, you did? I yeah. live like, I live about 10 blocks from there. Oh, no way. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's such a nice walk and the view is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, you know. yeah, it's a beautiful place for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me plug that 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 march. Of course, for, for encouraging you. folks to to get knowledge because we need to know what's yeah. going on. I yeah. appreciate you. Thanks for the call. Okay, neoliberal tears. Uh, howdy, Aaron. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can hear you great. Oh, okay. Kind of scary. Hello. Um, so, uh, I had a quick question for you. Um, and it relates to, uh, the horrible mess we're in in terms of, um, the anti-war movement and war and all of that. Um, have you ever seen the movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow? I don't think so. No, I haven't. Okay. So real quick, she's trying, so she's about to get on the, the Metro, um, in London and then the, I guess the timeline splits in two where she follows one timeline where she gets the, she gets the train and then there's another timeline where she misses the train and it follows her life from those two points of view. So I was going to ask you a sliding doors question in terms of, I was trying to think of all of these people, uh, looking back at Russiagate can't admit that they were wrong. Um, you know, if you go back to that time when Russiagate was just breaking um, in the news and you and you sort of felt like there was something off about it, like it wasn't it, it, it wasn't uh, motivated by any substance. The, the Steele dossier was a was a mess. 
um, you know, and all of these people, all of these journalists were basically, they had to give up their integrity, right? Or to go along with the narrative. Yes. What would it have, what would it have taken you, do you think, to give up? Because I feel like integrity <laughs> is something you have to give up on, right? You have to, you have to give yeah. something up. Um, so what would it have taken for, for you to succumb, I guess, to the self-interested, uh, uh, you know, what would it have taken for Aaron to, uh, to choose a different path? And, you know, maybe in, in, in another timeline, you're a CNN presenter or a <laughs> show. I don't yeah. know. What would it have taken you to give that up? Cause I feel like that's the missing key. Like a lot of people are choosing to, I guess, um, pursue what's easier. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you. look, you know, I think about this a lot because, um, I try to always, whenever I'm assessing someone's actions, uh, I try to first take the most good faith interpretation possible to what, to what motivates them. And so um, in the case of me, you know, look, I, I I had a strong, strong conviction that Russia Gate was not only just baseless and a scam, but also really dangerous. And I felt that with the whole core of my being. And that's what compelled me to, you know, take the hard line I did. But I, I knew in the process I was closing off some opportunities for myself career-wise for the rest of my life. And I just figured to myself, well, it's worth it because I just believe in this. And also, but I had the advantage of a few things. I, you know, like I knew that, like, let's say I had to leave journalism forever, um, which, you know, was a outcome that I had to consider. Because at the time, like, it wasn't this kind of environment we're in now where, like, where, like, independent-minded people are rewarded and there's opportunities for us. Like, at the time, there was basically, if you're if you were in lefty media, there was, like, to you know, to have a job, there was just weren't that many places, and um, and then RussiaGate made that even smaller because many lefty media places went along with RussiaGate. So, um, and at that point, I had just you know I, I left my I had a steady job at Democracy Now for ten years, and I just left. I left it in February 2016, and when RussiaGate started happening, I was working as a producer at Al Jazeera, but things were still very precarious for me, and like you know, I was in the I was just like trying to find a steady job because, you know, I wasn't like the Al Jazeera job wasn't like a long-term thing. It was like a, a I was on a six month contract and I was thinking like what I was going to have to do next. And then I went to the real news, which is like kind of like a, it was kind of like a, a much smaller version of democracy now, but also that was, you know, that wasn't very much money and it wasn't very stable. And so I knew I'd be, you know, cutting myself off from opportunities, but I just, you know, decided it was worth it for me because I knew it was bullshit. And also I knew it was very dangerous and I just really believed that it had to be challenged. But, but I, I also think I had the advantage of being able to take that risk because first of all, I knew that, you know, let, let's say I had to leave journalism forever. I, I knew I'd have a, I have a family that will have my back that will be able to help me out if I need it. Right. Um, so I'll never be on the street. Like I, I was confident of that. And second of all, I didn't have kids, you know, I don't have kids now. Um, but I, I was thinking, you know, for someone who has a family to support, I think different calculations come into, into play because, you know, it's not just about what, what is your like, you know, journalistic integrity. It's also about like, what is the best for my family? And sometimes those can be in conflict. Like if you lose a job, then that's, you, you might've done the right thing journalistically, but like, but uh, you might be putting your family in a very tough position. So I, those two factors, I think, were were there for me in in my decision making. And uh, I just can't ignore that for someone else, 
you know, supporting a family might be paramount and might allow them to either drink the Kool-Aid or just stay silent, you know, on things like this. And uh, family is a really hard, yeah. especially because we all have yeah. to our heads in terms of making money and surviving. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. But I, I was thinking the, the one example about family that I do not subscribe to is remember when Chris Cuomo brought up Andrew and he was like, but he's my brother. Like, what yeah, am I right, supposed right, to do? Yeah, like, right, okay, right. no, no, no. Like, we don't, we don't mean that. Um, but I do think it speaks, I just think about it a lot in terms of like, why did the squad relent on talking about Medicare for all? And like, yeah. it's all of these things. Like, you have to, you have to give something up. And I'm just really grateful that I live in the timeline where you, um, <laughs> you pursued your values. Um, so yeah, thank I did. You I, 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 all I, of us. But it was easy too because Russiagate was such an obvious scam. I wouldn't I, call I it easy. Eventually, it, I, again, you had to well, go literally against the current when it was not popular. I yeah, mean, yeah, 2017, yeah. Jesus. No, like, it, it was, it was like time. Iraq level up. Sorry. <laughs> it was a tough time, but also I knew it couldn't sustain itself forever. It had to collapse eventually. I was confident of that. And um, look, I, I had the support of, of some great people like Katrina Vanden Heuvel um, of The Nation magazine was very supportive of the work I was doing. And, you know, it, it all worked out. But I just I don't fault someone for taking a different position if their circumstances are different, especially if they have people to support, people who depend on them. Um, and it's possible my decisions would have been different. Uh, I mean, I don't, I like to think it wouldn't be, but I, you know, who knows? Um, there's only, you know, I, I can only go off the experience that I had, but uh, it's, it's unfortunate. And I've seen, you know, I've seen what happens with people who really like, you know, like look at the family of Malcolm X and Dr. King, people who really actually sacrificed themselves for, for a higher good. And the families paid a huge price. Like they were left without their fathers or taken away from them in their, in their late thirties. And that, you know, that, so obviously like I'm not comparing journalists to Dr. King and Malcolm X, but I'm just saying is like when someone takes a really principled stands there's as, something else has to give and oftentimes families will pay the price and i think there are many people in politics and media like member you know people in congress who just don't want to don't want to make that sacrifice or, or don't want to risk that sacrifice yeah but i guess but i guess that's really if you but if you ran for office on the pro literally fundraising from poor people saying you you are in pain right now the stakes are as high as they can po they can they ever were i mean yeah. urge of nuclear war like i i'm i'm terrified and scared all the time so if i had the luxury of being elected to congress I would I would stick to my fucking guns. I mean, Dennis Kucinich is still alive. You know, we, we... he is he is still alive. And, and what happened? And he's was... and, he, and he's the model. And I think is, and I, I, totally I and that's why I, yeah. I feel like people like AOC have been using that excuse in bad faith. Like you know, oh, leadership is so mean. Like you yeah. know, ultimately to the, the it, it it hides the extent to which they play in with leadership. Absolutely. Um, subserviently but i i hear what you're saying 100 percent. in terms of if you're a real person out there trying to make risk assessments i mean i don't fault you for not um yeah you know yeah. But, but i'm but i'm grateful to you Aaron. So thank well you. thank you i appreciate that and dennis Kucinich is a great example so he did he paid the price of basically losing his career as a politician like he was chased out of town there was no room in the, in the democratic party for someone who's actually principled against war and not just against war when it's partisan, but just principled against war, no matter whether it's like the Bush administration in Iraq or the Obama administration in Libya. Kucinich was against it. 
And um, he was chased out of town. And so, yeah, there are people who see that example and don't want to wind up like that because they want to preserve their careers. And uh, I agree with you. I would, I'd like to think I would never be someone who could be so craven and cynical as to choose career over conscience like that. And uh, especially because exactly as you say, Dennis didn't lose his life. Um, he, he just lost his, his career in politics. And uh, if you're going to be in politics, like what's the point? if you're not w- willing to sacrifice for your convictions, but that's, you know, that's for everyone to decide for themselves when they look at themselves in the mirror. You know, ultimately I, I try to subscribe to that. It's like, as much as I judge other people and I have my judgments and we all do, but I'm only responsible for how I look to myself in the mirror, not for how someone else looks to themselves. You know, it's their individual choice. Okay. Uh, Dale. Holy cow, I implored Aaron Maté, you're one of my heroes. It's amazing to be on your show. Uh, well, thanks for being here. Yeah, awesome. Like um I always um I always admire both you and Jimmy Dore and you did a great job throwing in for Jimmy Dore for reminding us that both parties are corrupt and we really need to take a third party avenue. And I, I'm, I'm always interested in having that conversation. Like, um, I'm afraid that it seems like uh, the movement for People's Party kind of crept on its own dick and, you know, broke its nose. You know, you know what are we going to do? What are we going to do about a third party? I mean, Ross Perot didn't work out. The Green Party, you know, they tried to give us Howie Hawkins and none of us bought it. Any ideas from that those angles that I'm trying to get at? Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, I I just saw there was a um, a story about how union membership in 2022 hit an all time low. Um, this is the headline from the Washington Post, and Dale, I'm gonna ask you to mute yourself because there's a, there's some, there's some background noise there. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah just, you got just put yourself on mute for a second. Thank you. Um, So this is the headline from the Washington Post. Union membership hits record low in 2022. Uh, Even as the labor movement scored victories at companies such as Amazon and Starbucks, the share of the workforce in unions continued to decline. And um, as long as that's the trend, I think developing a third party will will be very difficult because you, you know, a third party, I think, needs to come from workers, like from working people, because that's the masses. And if the masses were organized, I mean, you could have a really powerful political force because it's obvious that both parties in Congress just don't represent working people. Um, but if union membership is so low, it's just very difficult to organize people. So that to me is the key. And I don't know how to reverse that trend. I'm not an organizer, but I just think that as long as that remains the case, it's having a third party will, will be very difficult. And yeah, um, the movement for a people's party has tried, but it's hard. You know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to do it without like a visible candidate to, you know, rally people. And, um, there was some talk of Jimmy Dore running. Uh, and I think, I think that'd be awesome. But I also think for Jimmy, that's a big personal decision that, you know, when you do that, it's just, it's a big thing to take on to become a politician kind of dominate your life. And I don't know if that's not something I would, I would wish on anybody, you know, cause it's, it's very hard. And, um, 
And then there was some. Did, you know, did, some, did we not get a? Did we not get exactly a hard no from Jimmy? Was it? Are you trying to tell me that it was kind of you're kind of sort of thinking about something? I, I think he's still thinking about it. I don't think there's a hard no. I just think it's very hard to ask someone to to do that because it's a drastic. Yeah, it's a, a drastic yeah. change in their life, you know. Yeah, and, I've um, that. I got I got friends of mine that want me to take some kind of public office. And yeah, it's a hard decision. Yeah, it is hard. It is, and it's you know it, it's easier it's easier to say someone else should do it, you know, when when you're not the one yeah. being asked to do it, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, so I don't have any answers. I just I I think about this problem every day, and we do need a third party. Everybody knows it, so. Where, who's it going to come from? What's going to happen? I don't know. I mean, it'd be great to have a charismatic figure who can rally people. And, uh, you know, I think about people like Cornell West. That'd be wonderful. But it's just, it, it's easier said than done. Um, so why do we, why do we actually need a party? Why can't we just have like someone just like run by themselves? Like, like a Ross Perot did. Yeah, that could be done. Um, that could be done. But uh, to get on ballots and all that stuff, to run candidates, you need to have some kind of party affiliation, I think. It becomes technical, like, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, I get to tell all my friends that I talked to Aaron and Mate, you can take the next caller if you want to. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Dale, for calling. I I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Okay. All right, listen, so last call for callers because uh, the queue is empty right now. So I'll let anybody else who might want to jump in, get in the queue. And if not, we will wrap it there. Okay, there we go. Oh, Brent, I'm sorry, except for you, because you already called in twice. So I appreciate the interest, but I want to leave space for people who haven't called in yet. But thank you for your interest. Um, okay, well, it looks like we have no takers, so we'll we'll end it there. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I really appreciate you spending time with me. You can find me on Substack at matthew.substack.com. And here every week on Colin, I usually do this on Sundays and I'll do it again this week on Sunday, but this week I decided to change it up and do another show. So thank you for joining me and have a great rest of your day. Bye everybody.